long has it been since spreadsheets replaced paper, pen, and a calculator? Long time, right? It just seems like automation and productivity improvements are just another turn of the crank, and the crank keeps turning. But guess what? There are still opportunities to bring technology to users of pen and paper and clipboards. And now we can do it to another degree. Why? AI. Have we got a podcast for you today. I'm John Pryle. Welcome to Georgian's Impact Podcast. With us today is Frank Emery, Product Manager at Fix. Frank, we're glad to have you here. Why don't you tell us about what you do and who your typical customer is? Our typical customer at Fix is companies with lots of assets. These can be as diverse as manufacturing companies that have giant stamping presses on big shoproom floors to schools or gymnasiums that have lots of small assets and they just need to be fixed. And it really spreads across that spectrum and across a lot of verticals too. And so when we're building products for our teams, we really need to think of things from that perspective. It has to fit a lot of different audiences and a lot of different settings, dealing with a lot of different maintenance activities. My team in particular works on building AI tools to help make the older processes that these teams use more streamlined and save them time. So we always say that we're looking for the scale problems and the complexity problems in traditional maintenance activities. And we're looking to build AI to address those problems and make them a lot easier for our technicians to deal with. During the intro, I mentioned that your customers are not the typical office workers. You know, they're getting to the next rev of Microsoft Office. I think the market is really interestingly named CMMS, Computerized Maintenance Management System. So I'd love to spend a little bit of time on the type of data that you get and then what your thoughts are on how you turn up the crank a bit more with the machine learning and AI, if you don't mind, please. For sure. I can say, and I always tell this to my team, we're very lucky in terms of data. I know a lot of AI companies out there have to source their data, but we don't have to. So a lot of the data we get is actually generated from our systems ourselves. And so what happens is when maintenance technicians use the CMMS that Fix builds, they enter in all of this great data around parts they're using, work they're completing, what broke, when did it break, how did it break? And all of that gets stored in our data warehouse in a structured, clean format. And our AI team actually gets access to all of that. And so we can pull in that pre-structured data right into our machine learning engines directly without having to do any additional work. And then the other set of data we get is actually IoT data coming off of different assets that customers might have that track how those assets get used, when they get used, if there's been problems, all that fun stuff that AIs love to eat up and use. And when you think about gathering the data together, you've got lots of different companies. They may have similar data parts, whether it's different maintenance equipment around Windows or whatever it might be. And it is all your data, but the data does come from different company sources. How do you comfortably integrate them together? And what's the message you have when you're talking to your customers about the value of that aggregated data? You know, that actually comes up a lot when we talk to customers. What I always tell people is, when we ingest data from these different sources, what we do is everything comes in in its own data streams and it's all encrypted and secure end to end. And I always tell people that we ingest it in aggregate, but we use everything separately. So a lot of our really large customers for them, data security and trust is really important. And so what we do is whenever we build AIs or work with that data, we make sure that it's secured and we actually build custom 
AI algorithms and models and training sets based off of that specific customer's data. So we kind of get the ability to do research on this big body of data, but when we actually build products for end customers, everything is specifically tuned to that single customer's instance end-to-end, and there's actually no data blending, which people tend to find kind of surprising. Now, do you have shared learning from the data model? So for example, I love the fact that everyone's data is isolated and they're getting custom algorithms against that data. But if you've got multiple school systems, for example, are there learnings from one school to improve your models in any sub-markets? How do you begin to get value from being in more than one place in a similar space? So where we get value is in really the research side. So what we do is when we tend to build products, we do beta programs. And what we'll do is we'll launch our AI models out to say 10 or 20 customers across a bunch of different verticals. And what we pay attention to is the unique patterns in data and how data is created and used. And we build those learnings into our model generation algorithms. So a great example is the last beta we did, it was during COVID. And we found that some of our customers had really interesting data patterns and how data was being generated and how parts and work was being done. And so what we did was we learned about those specific sub-patterns and we built that learning into our model generation so that other customers would get higher quality AI products without actually having to share their data or have their data being used by anyone else. So all of this scale benefits that come from AI, we bake that into our research process. That is really awesome. So let's talk more about the users. Obviously, these are maintenance people. They're not technical. They could be sitting on a shop floor. How do you work with them? Build the trust. And, and I'm, I'm thinking a couple of elements. I'm thinking about user interface. I'm thinking about messaging so they don't think you're taking their jobs away. But <laughs> how do you think about that? How do you keep your end users in mind? For us, it really starts with those beta programs. So whenever we're building something new, we always like to lead with that social proof. So a couple of customers that we've worked with really closely from start to finish, who can then talk about what we're building and how it's working for them and how we're using data respectfully. And really to that end, when I'm picking beta customers and we're walking them through the process that we're doing, I kind of come at it from two angles. I like to give them a high level overview of what specifically we're doing with their data. So I'll tell them, here's the exact data we're using. Here's what we're going to be doing to it. Here's the end result. And I try to keep that understandable for them. So I try to word everything from the perspective that they're used to in the system. Uh, And then I go right to the value props afterwards. And so what I was always taught was no one buys data. They buy what data does for them. And so when we pitch these things, it's really that emphasis on here's what I'm taking and doing with it, but then more importantly, here's what you're gonna get out of it. And then we have frequent check-ins. So for a lot of our beta customers, when we're building something, I will talk to them every week for the three, four, five weeks it takes to get through their beta program, making sure along the way that their concerns are hurt, built into the product, and wherever there's concerns about data integrity, we address that right away. So with our current beta, we're doing a lot of really interesting work with maintenance requests specifically. And out of the gate, customers said, you know, please let us know how you're using our data to make sure it's being used respectfully. And we jumped on that right away. And we sent them all of our documentation. We jumped on the phone. We offered to have them talk to our machine learning team as well to make sure that they knew that everything that we were pulling out of the system was being pulled out securely. 
Yeah, you reinforced for me why I think product management is like the most interesting job at all of software. Uh, so as you're working through these betas and you're constantly talking to your customers, I think that's fantastic. And you're listening to what they say. It's evolving real time. You're hearing what they're saying in real time and then turning it back again in terms of as the product evolves and as your messaging evolves. So tell me more about the, the iterations you do with your customers. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the reasons why we've had so much success so far with their AI products is because we have that fast iteration. And it usually breaks into two pieces. So when we start beta programs and we start talking to customers, the first thing we always like to validate is, is our model spitting out the right thing? You know, if your model isn't spitting out the right results, there's no point in really focusing on anything else because you might have to figure out a new business process or a new end product that you can be building. So we start the conversations by saying, was this prediction accurate? Yes or no. And then usually those conversations turn into a discovery process about that particular user's businesses or maintenance processes that help us build and reinforce models later on. So when we did our first parts prediction model, the end AI that we used and deployed into production was probably not in any way what we first developed. And it's because of that feedback that we got along the way from talking to customers and building in how specifically they run their business. Once the model's predictions are coming out the way we want, it gets into the UI phase of things, which in a lot of ways can be kind of trickier because our user base isn't as technical as you might be used to. So a lot of the times when you think of AI, you probably think of a very technical team using it, but we're building AI for people who really want nothing to do with computers. They want an end result or an answer. And so when we get into the UI development phase of things, it becomes a discussion of, here's the result. Does it make sense to you? Is it clear what you have to do next? Is this something you think is going to be really useful? And the trick is, because we're deploying these new AI insights into these pre-existing processes, the rule of the game is it has to integrate with their existing processes in as seamless a way as possible. And that's where the UI work comes in, is how do you get these predictions and these insights from the AI fitting into these users' processes and existing workflows? And again, it comes down to those really frequent touch points. So the beta we're running right now, again, I'm every week on calls with our, our users saying, you know, did you use this? How did you use it? Was it seamless? And I'm looking for those cues about, are the products you're building introducing friction? And where that friction gets introduced, that means that the AI or the UI, sorry, has to be adjusted to make it lower cognitive load, easier to understand, easier for people to adopt. That is such a recipe for success. So there's a couple of outstanding areas and projects that you've got some great stories about. So I'd like to start kind of have you talk a little bit about how Fix and Georgian's R&D team work together, and then we'll drill into a couple of really cool solutions. But how'd the process go when you were working with Georgian's R&D team? Yeah. So actually, it's, I think my first day on the job, we met with Georgian's R&D team, which is a great way to start the job. And really what it comes down to is Georgian's R&D team is there to give us that advice and help when we get stuck. So we have our machine learning team. We have two great PhDs who are good at this stuff, but at a certain point, you sort of hit this barrier where you need that expertise to help solve problems. So I always think of it as you can be the best person at your job that you're going to be, and sometimes you need that fresh set of eyes coming in and saying, have you thought about this or have you thought about that to help you get through some really tough obstacles. And that's really where we work with the Georgian team is when we hit a point where you know we need that 
external insight or that fresh set of eyes, they can come in and, and help us with that. And then also really hold us to task and make sure that we're thinking about all of the different problems at play and where we might need to integrate a bit more support or more functionality in our product in order to make it that much better. Cool. So talk to me about where you are with the parts prediction app. Yeah, for sure. So that's the first product that we pushed into general availability back in July. So that's now live to all of the customers that we have that want it. And it's actually scaling really nicely. So we finished our beta with a handful of customers that had worked with us along the way. And I think we've tripled or quadrupled the number of users who are using it since then. So it's got fantastic market traction. People love it. And it's actually really interesting because a lot of the customers we talk to will look at this app and actually see it as a catalyst to help them improve different aspects of their business. Can you explain a bit more exactly how the parts prediction, what it actually does? Yep. Uh, So what our parts predictor does is it learns the seasonal workload for how teams are operating and what the inventory and parts consumption for that is. So we go into fix and we can see all of the work that teams are doing and all of the parts that you're using to do that work. So if you can think about it, when you're going in and you're fixing a truck, you're going to use some nuts, some bolts. You might use a new engine if it's really broken. We track all of that stuff inside Fix. And then what we can do is we can look at all of the work you're doing, the parts you're consuming for that work, and we can infer how much work you're going to be doing in the future. And so using that, we can actually solve one of the big problems with supply chain management and inventory management right now is predicting spikes in demand. Because we can model seasonality, and future demand for work inside a system, we can then actually predict where those spikes are going to be. And by being able to predict where those spikes in part demand are going to be, we can give you way more accurate estimates than traditional forecasting methods. What we do is we take all that demand forecasts and we build it into a really easy to use report based on all of the stuff that you have already entered in our system. So we get stuff like historical inventory usage, current inventory levels, minimum inventory levels, We take all that data, the demand that we've predicted, and then we add it all together. And we say, based on all the data you've given us, based on the data we've generated, here's what you should be buying in the next week or the next month in order to meet those spikes in demand that we're predicting. So prior to that, they were doing their best guess. They might end up having a need for a part that's not on hand. Yep. So I'm thinking back to your story about working with your customers. Here they are, people that are sitting with clipboards at best and maybe pieces of paper in a file folder somewhere, probably not a spreadsheet. And all of a sudden they're finding you telling them, we recommend you purchase another 12 window springs. Yeah. Is that how it works? Uh, That's not far off of it, actually. Usually, I think in uh, one of our, our users' examples, they actually did have a clipboard and they were walking around the factory with a clipboard and they were writing down their best guess as to what they had to buy. And they didn't really have an insight into what was currently in their inventories. And so when you're kind of leading with that approach, you're going off of luck at that point. And so what we're saying to them is, instead of just walking around with that clipboard and putting in random numbers, here's a really easy to use report. And you have two options. You can either by what we're suggesting, or you can put that report next to where you're filling stuff in your clipboard and use it to kind of inform your decisions. And it was that second approach that is actually how we build a lot of trust in the product. So when we released it, we told people, we get it. You have no reason to believe us yet. 
I understand. Here's the report. You go and you keep doing what you're doing, but put this beside your current work. And whenever you go and you purchase a part, look at what we're recommending. Take that into account and then see what happens in the next week. And we actually found that that was the easiest way for users to start using our reports. And then eventually they just gave up and they just started using our predictions outright because we were so consistently beating what they had written on the clipboard. That's tremendous. So don't just trust me. I'll show you. Do what you want to do. Just kind of keep your eyes peeled on the other side of this piece of paper. Were you able to take that data and actually, as you think about selling this to higher ups in the company, have an ROI, some type of returns you could tell the bosses that was coming out of all this data you gathered? Yep. So we went back. It takes a little while for the data to come out on this. Obviously, it's, it's long range processes. But for some of our beta customers, we were able to go back and actually look at the specific outcomes. And for some of our customers, we were showing increases in forecast accuracy of up to 80%, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. And that translated into, we're looking at 50 plus percent reduction in order sizes, actually. Wow. And in some cases, 100% reduction in stockouts. That's amazing. Sorry. So you mentioned stockouts. The other place working with the R&D team was about inventory. So you talk about stockouts. So how are the two related? And, and what was your focus on inventory management and how did the data and the AI lead to improvements in inventory management? For sure. So the way this project actually started out was the team went in to fix and looked at all the inventory that we had. And we actually noticed that some of our customers were having an epidemic of stockouts. So they completely ran out of parts. They weren't able to fix the machines that they were trying to fix. And then they actually had downtime. So they weren't even able to produce or ship parts at all. And so that's kind of how this whole process started. So the way that we look at AI here is I think a lot of companies, they say, here's AI, what problems fit it? Whereas what we did is we said, what are the problems our customers are experiencing that you can't really solve with existing technology? And that stockout problem, and specifically inventory management, was the first one that came up. And what we said was, we said, okay, well, if we can see that you're stocking out a lot, and we know you're stocking out a lot because you're not ordering the right amounts, how do we solve that problem? And it turns out that solving that problem means being able to have better accuracy when it comes to purchasing, better accuracy when it comes to figuring out the demand for parts going forward. And that's really where we brought in that AI to say, well, with AI, we can get you that accuracy that you need so that you can manage your inventory better. And then there ended up being this really interesting virtuous cycle where as soon as we started sending people these predictions, they said, well, if these are the predictions we're getting based on our current inventory management practices, imagine what we can do if we go ahead and invest further and make our inventory management even more robust than it is today. We can get even better accuracy, better purchasing, and save even more money and avoid even more stockouts. That's fantastic. So I'd like to close, Frank. We've talked quite a bit about the trust that you're building with your end users, these non-technical end users, as you prove yourself to them, the trust that you've got with the cross companies, because you're keeping the data private, but you're, you're learning from each company and improving what you deliver to each of your companies. So how important is the message of trust at both the corporate level and at the product level? Oh, it's incredibly important. I, 
whenever we talk to one of our really big customers about using AI, the first thing they always ask is, what are you doing with my data? And how can I be sure that it isn't going to help my competitors or put me at a disadvantage? Some of the data we have, you know, obviously, if it got leaked or jeopardized, a lot of our customers in the same verticals or the same spaces, and that could be quite damaging. So if we didn't have a high trust environment, if we weren't able to prove that data was being used respectfully, I think we would have an extremely hard time getting anyone to buy into these betas because it is a big leap of faith from their part. They're saying, here's all of the data about how we manage our business from a maintenance perspective, and we're giving it to you, hopefully to make things better, but also understanding that it's going to be treated respectfully, not leaking out all the company secrets in the process. So it really is hugely important to be able to, to have that trust with our customers and know that we can approach them and comfortably make these asks and, and have them say yes. Frank Emery, a fantastic story, a fantastic product. Great to see tech showing up in places where tech hasn't really been in the past. So it's been a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate you taking the time with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.